Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad, rubber-coated hardware for a better fit, and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Bots of the People. On this episode, we have Christy Tyle Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey and the former administrator at the EPA. We also have Joshua Kissy, who you might know from Street Etiquette, and he'll be talking about his new venture, Tonal. And then we have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as always. And um, before we get into this episode, I just have a brief word about the way that power works. Is that when Baldwin says whiteness is a metaphor for power, He's talking about whiteness in a way that is not just lynchings, not just overt racism, not the way we think about white supremacy normally. But you think about the idea that every character is white until otherwise named when we read books. Like that is a function of power. The fact that nude is the color of white people's skin and not mine is a function of power. And I say that because representation matters. That the way we show the world is being diverse and having people whose skin looks like mine and in uh, other colors on TV and in books and in narratives is really important because it helps deconstruct whiteness as a standard and as normal. And we can't take those things for granted that our work is about changing structures and systems. Our work is also about changing the way that people see the world and the way that people show up in the world and representation is a part of that. And now let's get to it. And now the news with me, Brittany Pagnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the task force in 21st century policing, and now a leader in education, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. It's the news. This is Brittany Pagnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So, Clint, we have a surprise for you today (laughs) because you just got married, as we tried to tell the internet on Twitter. Uh, So, surprise guests, can you say hi? Hi, honey. It's your mom. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Pew, pew, pew. Hi, guys. Hi, DeRay. I'm Brittany. Um. We just wanted to invite you to come and say some inspirational Same. words to the podcast world and to Clint now that he's a married man and and everything. Oh, my. Okay. Inspirational words <laughs> for Clint and for the podcast and everything. So I am totally, um, my husband and I totally um, over the moon for Clint marrying the love of his life, who we adore. And uh, we are so excited for our family to grow and grow and grow. And um, she's the best. So we are looking forward to uh, the rest of our lives with uh, Clint and his beautiful wife and, of course, his beautiful son. And, uh, yeah, marriage is uh, a journey. So welcome to the journey. And I have told uh, my two married children many times, like, hold on for the ride. And this is bigger than yourself. And uh, y'all got my mom on a pulpit. Now. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, if Ariel was here, she'd say I was being long-winded. 
Isn't that what she says? Yeah. So I that runs it. in our family. I yeah. love it. So we're long-winded. So I could Yay. say a lot. I could Yay. say a lot about marriage and my son and his bride. But um, just know that we're the. Are there any fun, uh, fun? Aww. Wait, mom, don't go mom. yet. Don't go yet. Are there any fun, uh, fun facts that the, that the world should know about Clint? Well, he um, is an adoring <laughs> son, and uh, I'm an adoring mom. And I'm cooking as we speak his favorite meals. Um, so dirty rice and fried pork chops and some other string beans and uh, oven baked chicken. And yeah, he's he's spoiled. But that's this what is we like do. A, that's we a full meal. Things. I thought. That- Did you say you were inviting us all over for dinner? Right. Is that what you said? I think you just said you're inviting what? us over for what? dinner. There's no. <laughs> what? There's no more food left. Oh, that was so fast. Oh man, sorry. Clint, I thought that, that's really cool. Clint, I thought that jambalaya was your thing. You know, I have a, a diverse New Orleanian palate, so uh, dirty rice is my go-to, but jambalaya is, is a close second. Um, there's just so much good food from New Orleans, and so. And anytime you're in New Orleans, guys, you know, give me a holler. DeRay can attest the door is open. We'll definitely be taking you up on that. Well, thank you so much for being our surprise guest today. And Clint, we love you. Congratulations, Clint. As do I. Congrats, Clint. Love you guys. Thanks for everything. Thanks for keeping it real out there for us. Thanks. Bye. I love it. All right. Love you, Mom. I love it. The wedding was incredible, Clint, and I'm I'm just glad that you had a really amazing time because you deserve it. And um, I've said it before, and I will say it every time I get the chance. You are amazing and brilliant, probably at the top of most of my personal list of the people I actually know, but you definitely married up. And so congratulations on winning the lotto. Man, Ariel's amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's what they tell you you're supposed to do. You know, she is, she's, she's wonderful, you know, smarter than me, better looking than me. She's the best. Um, so yeah, I was telling my, somebody the other day that, uh, the, the, not Ariel is half Nigerian. And so the, the halfway through the wedding, we, as you all know, we switched clothes into traditional Nigerian garb and we played a lot of Nigerian music and, and my knees started doing things that I didn't know that they were capable of. I watched a couple of YouTube <laughs> tutorials beforehand, you know what I'm saying, to get like my nausea, my nausea bones ready. But um, but my mother-in-law was like, I didn't know you could do that with your legs. And I was like, I didn't know either. <laughs> but, you know, this was the one night. So it was uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing night. I'm, I'm so grateful for the community of family and friends who came through. And, um, you know, as we all know, amid a moment of, uh, a political moment of like such uncertainty and and something that's so precarious and and frightening the to really uh, take the time to to go to the sort of small universes of of people you love um, amid uh, a much sort of larger social tumult is um, is a reminder of what it's all about and is a reminder of of what we work for and what we fight for and and I was so grateful for. Uh, for that reminder um, this past weekend. I was going to say congratulations, Clint. And, you know, I know the Nigerian dances and uh, other West African dances can be challenging. So I kind of want to see that video um, because Lord (laughs) knows when (laughs) I was in South Africa for six months and trying to learn uh, a variety of different dances and was not successful at any of them. So uh, I hope to see that video and (laughs) learn from your example. 
You just got to dip with conviction. That's what it is. That's like 90%. It's just like go in for the dip and hope you don't fall. <laughs> I will definitely fall. Got to dance with courage, Sam. Dance with courage. I love it. <laughs> Brittany, you're, it's like, that's like, Sam that's your next speech. Knees. You got to dance with courage. <laughs> Okay, so now it's time for some news. Um, So for the past 23 years, the Pew Research Center has been asking Americans of all stripes a set of 10 questions. Uh, These questions have been used to measure partisan divides and other divides across the country for the last 23 years, since 1994. Uh, Recently, they came out with their most recent report of this research, and it turns out, probably unsurprisingly, that the partisan divides over political values are wider than ever before, at least certainly in the 23-year history of this measurement. Um, So we were at a point in 1994 when there was a 15% gap uh, on political issues between Democrats and Republicans. Now in 2017, there is a 36-point gap. Um, We've seen, uh, so there's a massive gap on lots of issues. There were four social issues that struck me in particular um, on questions about whether or not immigrants today are a burden on our country or not, or whether homosexuality should be discouraged by society. Their words, not mine. Um, there has been an overall decline in agreement with those with those questions. In other words, on issues of immigration and um, gay rights issues the country overall has become more liberal, even though there is still a gap between Democrats and Republicans, um, where the gap has widened and Republicans have become more conservative while Democrats have become more liberal, are on questions about environmental policy and um, Black responsibility and will. So one of the questions is stricter environmental laws and regulations cost too many jobs and hurt the economy. Um, Republicans, more Republicans believe that than they did in 1994. Fewer Democrats believe that than in 1994. And blacks who can't get ahead in this country are mostly responsible for their own condition. More Republicans believe that. Fewer Democrats believe that today. Uh, you, There are lots of conversations happening right now about um the, the partisan divide, the partisan gap. I worry often that it is a, dis- a distracting conversation from real issues of equity, that people are more concerned with finding middle ground instead of doing the things that are actually right for marginalized communities. And so I just wanted to put that in front of us for us to talk about. There are lots of ways to come at this information, including the knowledge now that there are fewer people in the middle. So there are fewer people who identify with both conservative and liberal viewpoints on a number of issues. Um, But the divide is wider than ever. That's undeniable. The question is, how should we be focusing on it and what kind of weight should we actually be giving that? So this is fascinating. And I I just want to bring in, you know, Pew Research has done consistently great research on uh, the perceptions of, of racial attitudes in this country. So how people perceive race, how they perceive racial inequities. And they recently did a a sort of follow-up to this study that asked the question uh, whether people think that blacks who can't get ahead in this country are either mostly responsible for their own condition uh, or whether it was racial discrimination that is uh, the main reason why black people can't get ahead. And as you said, Brittany, what's fascinating here is the partisan divide. So since 2014, you see a huge divide growing between Republicans and Democrats uh, in terms of how they answer this question. And now 2014, of course, is when Ferguson uh, began and when this national conversation about racism, uh, police violence, and black lives emerged. 
And since then, you know, before that, it was 28% of Democrats believed that racial discrimination was sort of a serious problem or the main reason that black people couldn't get ahead, and 9% of Republicans. So really, neither Democrats or Republicans, and of course, this is mostly uh, white Democrats and, and Republicans, did not believe that racism was a serious issue before then. Now, you fast forward to now, 64% of Democrats believe that racism is a serious problem, but only 14% of Republicans do. So Republicans are essentially unchanged, but Democrats have gone from only about 30% believing that racial discrimination is a serious issue to 64%. Uh, And so that's a huge gap, but it's also a lot of progress, right? That's you know, millions and millions, tens of millions of people who have a different opinion than they did in 2014. Um, And so there's sort of a bright spot there that, you know, maybe you can only change half the country that's, you know, democratic leaning or or willing to to listen, but that that half still matters. That's a really great point, Sam. I'm glad you brought that up. And it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot uh, as of late. And just, you know, I think that oftentimes when we think of social movements, I think there is political change with a big P, and then there's political change with a sort of little p, right? And so big P political change is, you know, public policy shifts uh, with regard on our on a federal, state, municipal level, whether that be in um, local police departments, whether that be uh, federal uh, social safety net programs or things like that. But I also think that we can't undermine or or can't forget about the sort of political change with a with a small p and that that's a, the what is a very real shift in people's consciousness and that's not to say that you will take someone who was a white supremacist and then make them think that the you know centuries of uh, state sanctioned violence are the reason that black people exist in the social conditions they do today but what it I think we often don't account for the extent to which people are simply naive of the wide ranging history of discrimination and oppression that has created the conditions in which black people live and that's that's not to say that that will change the decisions that they make you know necessarily like I think it's one thing to know that to become aware of the fact that the new deal uh, allotted resources to white people and not to black people and then it's another thing for that to change your behavior but I don't think we can discount the the role that learning these things that people have learned over the last several years has shifted the way that people understand inequality and, and racial stratification. And, and I think that that is promising. I'm also mindful too. So all this, all this makes a lot of sense. And Sam, you're right that Pew has done a lot of research and, and Clint, thanks for helping contextualize this and Brittany for just like laying bare what happened, like, or what the data says. I think that one of the things that was most interesting to me was the question of, um, the percentage who say the country needs to continue making changes to give blacks equal rights to whites. And it is the highest it's ever been for dim or dim leaning people. And it's actually among the highest right now that it's ever been for Republican or Republican leaning people. So the highest it was ever was around 20, uh, 2016. It was 39%. It's 36% right now for Republican or Republican leaning. And it's 81% for um, for Democrat or Democrat leaning. And Sam, I think you're right that in, in the past three years, what we've seen is with the protests is, and Clint, you, everybody named it, is like we've seen this public conversation about race and justice change people's attitudes. I'm also mindful to be 
cautious about how we interpret this data because sometimes it's easy for people to believe certain things and not actually follow those beliefs up with any action. So when you think about the polling that was done during the civil rights movement or or other times in, in the American moment, uh, people's attitudes actually weren't reflective of like the equity and justice that we deserve or the attitudes didn't actually ma- match the actions. I think that what this data seems to suggest to me right now is that we have an opportunity to harness all this energy. And I think this polling data actually mirrors what we see in real life is that there are all these people who like believe in a better world, I think. Uh, and the question for us as organizers is can we harness that and turn it into action that leads to results? Yeah, I think that's a really important point to Ray. And, and it's important to remember that uh, while a different sense of consciousness or education can lead to different actions, it doesn't necessarily, as we've said, and because at the end of the day, it's a lot easier for people to believe in equality in the abstract than it is when it necessitates that they have to give something up to achieve true equity. And and if equity or if a, if a lack of equity and a lack of equality is predicated on you having something at the expense of someone else, it's one thing for you to be aware that you have something at the expense of someone else. And it's a very different thing to say, OK, well, now what am I going to do to afford this resource or this opportunity or or these advantages to the very people who are not afforded those things because I have them. And I think that that takes a different level of of proactivity. It takes a different level of sacrifice. And but that is that is what we should continue to be pushing toward. I think everything you all are saying is so right, which is why I continue to worry about the ways in which the structure of this conversation in the general public has been really harmful to the cause. Again, people being more concerned with bridging the divide than actually creating equity for people. Um, At the end of the day, diversity, inclusion, equity should not be partisan issues. Um, Anybody who treats them as though they are should be ashamed. Um, And we should talk about it as though that is a shameful thing because it is. So learning and consistently hearing the truth really does matter. Um, And that means that we can't allow people to demean these kinds of questions, these kinds of questions, these kinds of issues as mere identity politics, right? We know what that is a dog whistle for. Um, And at the end of the day, if your belief is in disagreement with my humanity, I don't think we're always willing to say that I don't have to be tolerant of that. I don't have to make room for that. There's not room in a big tent for you to negotiate away my humanity and call it your political or ideological leaning. Um, And I think much more of the country is reckoning with um, the 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 difficulty and the nuance of what that actually means to your point, Clint. But certainly interesting research, um, and I'm hopeful that we can hold fast to what it means to really create an equitable and liberated space uh, in our country for all people and not just some people, and not get merely caught up in kind of ideological divides. So my piece of news is about Chicago Public Schools enrollment drop. So they're reporting that it'll be about 10,000 less students in Chicago Public Schools than from last year, and that this steep drop in enrollment was was not expected to be as steep. And what's interesting is that people's first reaction when this was on Twitter was like, oh, look at the charter schools taking away kids from the traditional public school system. And this number actually includes uh, the number of students in charter schools as well in the city of Chicago. And what it, why I wanted to bring this up is that we're actually seeing a drop in enrollment in a, in a lot of school systems across the country. I know Baltimore had a drop in enrollment recently. Um, I don't think the new numbers are out. I know Aurora Public Schools had a drop in enrollment that was big or significant for them. And the reason that this matters in the grand scheme is that most funding is tied to per pupil. So the number of students you have determines the amount of money that schools get and the district gets. 
what Chicago Public Schools is doing that's actually really interesting and, and important is that they are not going to reallocate school budget space when the enrollment drop, which is, that's a big decision to do. And I say that as somebody who used to be the chief of human capital, that the district's going to absorb the cost, the loss of those students some other way. But this has far-ranging implications for the longer term, that in public education, the public discourse is often around classrooms, which makes sense because we know classrooms is a site of change. We don't have as much conversation about the structures that those classrooms actually fit in. And enrollment is one of those structural things like attendance, uh, like behavior management at the district level, like professional development. There are a whole host of things that we just don't talk about much, but the enrollment piece is huge. And what will the future of public education be when people just choose to opt out by going to suburban schools or private schools instead of going to schools that have been traditionally failing in a host of ways? The last thing I'll say is that we actually find in the enrollment data that elementary schools sort of fare generally well. Like most people are like, okay, with the elementary schools or the earlier grades, it's the drop off is often in middle and high schools. And we know that middle schools are just harder. They're like harder learning environments. Uh, in a lot of cities. So it'll be interesting to see what this looks like and if we can actually pivot the national conversation to have a real focus on solutions for things like enrollment, professional development, some of those bigger structural things. To be clear, I am not an expert on Chicago public schools and I know there's a great deal of nuance, Um, but reading this article and a couple of other ones, it looks like the um, costs are going to be absorbed really by the taxpayers. So CPS is going to raise property taxes by just over 8%, which will generate um, about $225 million of revenue that they plan to spend mostly on um, the teacher's pension fund, which has a, which has to which they have to make greater contributions in the past, um, and school infrastructure projects. It also means that they will choose not to make mid-year budget cuts, as you alluded to before, DeRay, or um, order people to take unpaid staff furloughs, which they've done in years prior. And I think that's an incredibly important um, acknowledgement that disinvesting from um, schools that need great teachers, that need teachers who are supported, and as you said, DeRay, professionally developed, um, is critically important and is the choice that the city is going to make, right? So instead of moving away from schools where uh, enrollment is dropping off, investing less in them, giving up on them, walking away from them, they're making a fundamentally different choice. And I'm hopeful um, that that choice will bear great fruit because unfortunately that's not the choice that a lot of our cities are making. And obviously part of what I'm thinking about when we're discussing um, the underutilization or, or dropping school rates um, or dropping attendance rates in schools is is that the conversation around what our schools look like is inextricably linked, as we've discussed many times on this podcast and elsewhere, to the landscape of housing and housing segregation uh, and often public housing in these communities. And so while DeRay is, is right in pointing out that the uh, sort of reduced number of students in CPS this year is not singularly the result of charter schools or private schools or or anything. Um, and that it, it does seem that more students, or more families are moving to the suburbs and leaving Chicago proper. And, and I think we should have a more extensive conversation about how the demographics of the suburbs are, are actually changing as more and more people are being gentrified out of um uh, what used to be the quote unquote inner city, but but it it is important to remember that 
part of the landscape of Chicago's public school system and what schools are being shut down and what schools are uh, being underutilized, uh, to use the language of the district, is uh, very much tied to Chicago's decisions to uh, tear down certain public housing units, is very much tied to the uh, zoning laws and segregation law, uh, residue of segregation um, policy in uh, many Chicago neighborhoods. And so, it, you know, that's just always something to keep in mind is that we can't have a conversation about what's happening in the school system without also looking at the sort of larger landscape of housing. Yeah, to build off that point, I would be fascinated to see some subsequent research looking at the demographics of the students that are leaving the district. Uh, and then some of what you are saying, Clint, around the conditions that preceded uh, this drop in enrollment and how they might have been linked to particular neighborhoods that have been segregated or, you know, de facto segregated for so long. Yeah, and the last thing I'll add is that this is an interesting issue, too, of what does it mean to have equitable funding? Is that some of what it might take to actually make sure that every kid can learn will be funding public schools in urban places that have been historically disadvantaged, funding them in a different model. So what would it look like that despite declining enrollment, that funding still stays the same? That uh, the push for pure pupil was this idea of giving schools more autonomy and taking into account like the number of kids and, and it was its own focus on equity. But what does it look like to actually over-invest in communities that were, or like seemingly over-invest in communities that were traditionally under-invested in as a way to bring equity? Because like you talk about, Clint, is that this is a, like these schools are failing because of historical reasons in so many ways. Like what does it mean to come from communities where people weren't allowed to read for centuries and all of a sudden it's like, well, they're low reading scores. It's like, you know, that sort of, that makes sense in some ways. So how do we combat that? What I, The last thing I'll say, and we should probably talk about this on another pod, but I'll just say it now, is that I do want us to talk about standardized testing with a little more nuance than what the public conversation for, allows for. Because what we all know as teachers is that like we need data so that we can make a meaningful impact on our kids' learning. And I've seen some people be anti any sort of data about kids' learning in a way that I actually think doesn't help us in our end goal of equity. So my piece of news is a new study that just came out. It was profiled in the New York Times that looked at body cameras. Specifically, they did a randomized control trial in Washington, D.C., with 2,000 D.C. police officers involved. And they wanted to look at answer this question of whether body cameras meaningfully impact the likelihood that police will use force, uh, the likelihood that you know civilian complaints against police will be filed, the likelihood that police will uh, arrest and charge people. They looked at all of these factors for a significant amount of time. And what they found is that none of the things that they measured, none of those metrics were meaningfully impacted by the presence of body cameras. So the officers with body cameras were no more likely uh, to, or no more or less likely to use force or any of those other things than officers without body cameras. And so there has been a lot of conversation on, on and offline around, you know, what does this mean for body cameras? Uh, recognizing that there are so many departments now that have adopted body cameras, spent a lot of money on these on this technology, uh, with in a conversation that was uh, about how do we deal with police violence? And you know what the study shows is that you know police violence body cameras weren't preventing police violence at least in Washington D.C. Uh, and this was the the most rigorous uh, and extensive study that has been done on body cameras to date. Uh, because of the nature of the design of it and the number of officers involved. 
So I bring this to the conversation to number one, think about, you know, was this actually the, was the finding and the way that it was reported uh, actually accurate in terms of, you know, this body cameras don't do anything frame. Um, and number two, you know, are there ways to think about this technology differently in that it could make impact now that, you know, so many departments for better or for worse have already adopted it. Are there ways of tweaking it to actually make that impact? Uh, and so I'll, to start that conversation, I think there are two pieces of it that often didn't get reported. Uh, and one of the angles is that, you know, while body cameras haven't prevented police violence, at least in the study suggests, there have been noticeable potential impacts of body cameras on the accountability side of the equation. So there have been only three officers that have been, or three cases where an officer has been charged with a crime for killing a black person this year. Two of those three cases had body camera uh, evidence or video recordings, and the and the third case had surveillance video. So video was a was present in all three of those cases, despite only being present in about twenty percent of uh, all cases where police kill somebody. So clearly, the video seems to have some sort of relevance and impact in influencing that decision to charge the officer. And the second piece that's interesting is the amount of data that body cameras do collect. And how that data is now being used by some researchers and others to identify new forms of racial disparities in policing uh, and to sort of validate other forms that we knew existed but couldn't measure. So there was a study that Stanford did that looked at officers' language and tone during police stops and found that the tone was more harsh uh, when encountering a, a black person versus a white person. So that's sort of the overview of, of what's in the study, what else has been said, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, you know, this issue. Cause it is sort of a, a hot button issue in the field of, you know, how do we address police violence? The fact that there is some really crucial data being collected by body cameras, um, but they're certainly not the single solution that lots of people purported them to be once upon a time. That is why campaign zero is 10 platform points and not just one. Um, but there are also real concerns about surveillance in communities, about what those body cameras can be used to do, not just now, but in the future. Uh, but if we just got rid of them altogether, if we acted as though they don't do anything by way of prevention, to your point, we're not collecting that data. We're not um, actually seeing the truth of how black and brown communities are being treated, not just in the most extreme cases of, of, of police violence, but also in those everyday indignities. And we're also losing what I think can be a crucial accountability tool. Uh, and and I'm, I worry about what happens if we just throw that out because a particular study uh, says that they don't have any effect at all. Yeah, I think this data and this study is incredibly important and it was obviously done very thoughtfully, very rigorously, which uh, is not necessarily the case for for past studies on uh, body cameras. But, you know, I, I think the the verdict is still out to some extent. And what I mean by that is I think that there are more studies that need to be done in more municipalities with more departments. I think that uh, the history and the the idiosyncrasies of the Washington, D.C. police department are are in many ways unique, as as many cities are unique. And, and my hope is that we will continue to have rigorous uh rigorous studies done throughout different cities across the country. I think it is, it's a, it's a fine line, I think. And, and we need more information and we need more studies um, and we need more randomized control tests, but we should also be careful of uh, throwing money at things that are not working in the ways that we 
would like or expect them to. And what we should do is follow the science and not follow anecdotes and not follow uh, even our guts, right? Because we want to make sure that if we if if it makes sense in one city to spend more money on uh, get allotting the funds of uh, that that uh, city's budget has to something on the more preventative side than something uh, like body cameras, then that might make more sense in in a certain city, and in another city, um, we might come to a different conclusion. Yeah, and the the only thing I add is that you know I saw some some hot takes being like you know we told you so da da da, and it's like the reality is that we always knew that that the body camera information would be like unfolding. Uh, and we all agreed that it was too costly, right? That like there has to be a more inexpensive way to do it. There's so much data collected and the body camera company is actually making the most money off of the storage, right? Like forget the actual cost of the devices. It's the storage for all the data that they're collecting that is actually, you know, where the money is. And, and like, there has to be a cheaper way to do that so that, we're not funneling money, more money into police departments because we don't need to do that at all. Now, this study in particular, what's sort of interesting about it is that the two metrics they use are complaints against the police and then use of force as reported by the police. So the only like so when they talk about that, there's no impact. It's like use of force in D.C. is actually only serious force. So I know Sam and I sort of disagree about this metric, but like I'm not convinced that the police reporting whether whether they have inflicted harm on people that has resulted in like a bruise or was serious is like the best metric of, of whether body cameras have actually changed their behavior or not. Or if people filing reports is actually like the best indicator either. And I say those two things, one, because we know that some of the trauma that the police inflict on communities is actually not like wouldn't meet the bar for what the city determines is serious. Right. So like sexual harassment, for instance, isn't in most places like serious, a serious, um, serious harm, but that's still a real problem. Right. And then we think about the complaints is that like almost no cities have done any campaigns about helping people understand how to navigate the complaint process. And you know that just because you didn't file a complaint doesn't mean that you don't have a complaint. So I want to tease those out a little bit better. I'd be interested to see if there was a way to collect data on um, like interactions in body cameras, right? So like has a number of contact uh, or has contact with the police and communities gone up or down? And like, what has that contact looked like? Or in communities that have been um, where body cameras existed exist now and didn't exist before, like how public perception has been, like, I'd be interested in those. Um, so this, the study is interesting because it opens up space. I don't think that the findings are as conclusive as the study says, and yes, body cameras cost too much money. So my piece of news uh, is short, but, but important, I think. Um, and that's, you know, obviously we've had a tumultuous hurricane season over the past several months and Hurricane Harvey, which hit Texas was uh, particularly catastrophic in in many ways. And uh, we saw that on the news and it was well covered. And there's a lot to be said for the way that um, we responded collectively as and publicly and governmentally to Harvey as compared to um, Puerto Rico, which we have gone into and, and which there are a lot, a, a lot can be said about. Uh, but, but part of what I'm interested in is the part of Hurricane Harvey's impact that wasn't covered. And um, that was the way that that storm um, and the subsequent flooding impacted people who were incarcerated in in Beaumont particularly. And so uh, there have recently been a, accounts that were collected by the National Lawyers Guild uh, of prisons and, and inmates who describe cells where 
the the water was knee high and contaminated with urine and feces. Uh, the f- toilets were not flushing. They were were not allowed to take showers. Um, they weren't allowed to change clothes for up to two weeks. Uh, and that the United States Penitentiary in Beaumont, which was operated by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, uh, was inaccessible to visitors for up to a month after the hurricane. And so, you know. Part of the what prison is 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 an it is an institution that is predicated on the idea of social isolation, and and I think this embodies that sort of social isolation in the ways that we uh, this is a, something that we've not heard about right that hundreds of people who are in prison were unable to take showers for weeks were not getting the water or the food that they needed that they were in knee high uh, contam- water that was contaminated with with their own feces. Um, and and the story goes on. This is uh, some reporting done in The Nation by uh, John Washington. But the story goes on to talk about the the just horrific conditions in which these um, these folks were, were living in and were forced to live in for weeks. And um, that there were people who who potentially died um, from this that we are and that we're not getting accurate information from um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons with regard to the specific nature of the situation following the the hurricane was. And so um, as always our, our incarcerated brothers and sisters are folks that we always have to keep in mind because um, very few people are are thinking about them and very few people are concerned with them. And um, just because, as we always say, just because you've been put in prison doesn't mean you don't deserve basic human rights and, and not having more than two bottles of water a day or not having a toilet that flushes or, uh, living in a cell that has the water with your own feces in it is is certainly not aligned with any human rights that we espouse. Yeah, I'll just say one of the things that this reminds me of is that we largely in the public discourse around mass incarceration only think about it as a front end issue. Like if we just stop arresting people, then that'll be like the way that we get out of this uh, problem that we've created. And the reality is, is that we have to have real changes with the way that we like deal with the people who are incarcerated. And it actually also makes me think about this battle that happens inside of organizing spaces of like reform versus revolution. And people are like, you know, you know, you, you reformist and da, 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 da. You're like conforming to the system by reform. And and I always think about reform as like the stuff that we can do today to make people's lives better today. And sort of the revolution is sort of the bigger systemic change that we will do to fundamentally transform systems and structures. And like today people should have food if they're in prison, not in prison, in jail, not in jail. Like people should be able to read like, and if you call those things reform, then like sign me up as a reformist. But I believe that we need to fight to make sure people's todays and tomorrows like work. And when I think about what happened uh, in this natural disaster is that we actually stop paying attention to like real people's lives in this moment. And I think that happens too often that like there's so many things about the conditions in prisons and jails that we need to fix today while we also work to decarcerate and get as many people out of prison. It doesn't have to be either or. And we don't have to wait until we finally figure out how to strip the carceral state from its power to focus on the fact that people are like living every day in these systems and structures. And what I'll say is, you know, there are 1.6 million people in prison right now. And, you know, another 600,000 people in jails. And that's a huge portion of the population. So, you know, to think that we can't really 
improve their lives unless we, you know, fight for sort of the long-term goal of decarceration, uh, I think is, is sort of disrespectful to the people who are there, right? Right now, people who need food, people who need not to be compelled to do labor, people who need uh, to be able to call a family member without an outrageous charge. Um, I think all of that is really important and is not sort of the more glamorous, you know, we're going to dramatically reduce sentences and, you know, end cash bail and do all of these sort of uh, more dramatic and and far-reaching initiatives that take time. But but these things really matter to a lot of people. And so I think we have to be holding both uh, while we're pursuing change and figure out how we can make sure that that need is met just as much as we're figuring out how to deal with some of the longer term stuff. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Christy Ty Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey, the only female governor of New Jersey and former administrator for the EPA. 
Well, Chrissy Todd Whitman, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm delighted. Well, let's start with the governorship. Why did you run to be the governor of New Jersey? Well, I ran for governor because I love the state. And I'd grown up here. I live on the farm on which I grew up, actually. And I didn't like what was happening. And I thought I could contribute to that to make it better. So it was... uh, I'd grown up around politics and around public service more than even partisan politics. And so it had kind of always been in my blood. And and I thought this was a good way to to give back. And what was it like to be the first woman governor um, and only woman governor of New Jersey? Well, you know, it's so hard for me to answer that question. And I don't mean to be flip, but I don't have a clue because I was never a male governor. I mean, it it really (laughs) is that simple in many ways. Um, You know, were there... Were there things that went on or prejudices or that kind of thing? Sure. But, um, you know, there's a lot of that in politics, especially these days. Uh, So you can't blame it all on being the first woman governor. I know that the the, uh, gentleman, let's say, in the legislature had some issues with that, but um, more because of the people I was appointing, I think, because I did appoint more women and minorities to high visibility positions than anybody else had. But, um, you know, it, you get over that. The thing to remember about being governor of New Jersey is it is the most constitutionally powerful governorship in the nation, and it means you can really get things done. And while obviously you have all the constraints of a legislature and the Supreme Court, you still, the people know who to blame. If you can't get things done, you better have a good explanation as to why you can't get them done, because the cabinet's all yours. You appoint all the prosecutors, all the judges. Well, almost all the judges, there's one bent lay or the bench that you don't. So it's it's got an enormous ability to change things. And what advice would you have for, for young women who in this moment are starting to run for office or thinking about running for office? Are there is there any advice that you have for them, given your experience in politics? Well, my advice is always to know why. Um, you got to have a real reason to want to put yourself through this and just having a... You know, it's not about power. It's not about prestige, as it were. Those things are pretty fleeting. Uh, so it's, I always, I do tell people, find something else to do too. So you have a real job to fall back on. I think one of the biggest mistakes people get in is if they say, if it's not just public service, I'm talking now about running for office, which is different than pure public service. But because that can be a career in and of itself. But if you are thinking about running for office, you better know why so that you can convince people that there's a reason to support you over somebody else because you will be always running against somebody else. But it's also a good idea to have the uh, a profession, something that you like to do that you could fall back on, because when you get people in these positions and it's the only position they've held and that's their life, then they stop making the kinds of decisions that I think we want them to make because they want to protect their job. And the only way to do that is not to take on necessarily the big issues, not to take on the most controversial issues that probably are the ones that need the solving the most. Got it. And you were the administrator of the EPA from uh, 2001 to 2003, appointed by President George W. Bush. How Mm -hmm. did you get to the EPA? What was that transition from from being a governor to, to making it to the EPA? Well, it was, um, you know, learning a lot. Uh, Even though I had dealt a lot with the EPA as a governor, uh, there was a lot to learn because it's a a regulatory body and it's got constrained by a lot of the legislation that Congress passed when they established the agency. So it's, uh, 
It was more than even I understood when I took it over. But, you know, I, I did what I do in when I've taken any position, which is to seek out the people. There are always going to be people in any job, certainly any job I took, that were going to know more about it than I did because that's what they've been doing their entire lives. And so I always think it's a very good idea to, to find out, find the people and listen to them, talk to them, listen to them, say, look, what's the biggest issue you've got on your agenda? What's your biggest concern? What do you think our biggest problems are? And then, of course, you also have the, also have the president's agenda, and you need to put that into play. And so you need to figure out how to, where does it differ from what the people have been doing? How do you explain to others why this is important and um, get them to support it? And for many people, you know, many people know that the EPA exists for whatever reason, but don't really know what the EPA does. How would you explain the work of the EPA and why it's important in the American sort of ecosystem of politics? Uh, The EPA keeps us healthy. The EPA is about protecting public health and the environment. And we can't live without a clean and green environment. And the idea that somehow you can't have that as well as a thriving, growing economy is just wrong. We've proven it wrong over and over. And we need to get the message out that this people don't get up in the morning and say, whose life can I mess up today? And I will pass a regulation to do that. Regulations are based on science. And that's terribly important that we remember that. We seem to be forgetting a lot of that. It's, they're based on what is what is it acceptable for humans to ingest? How much how much arsenic can you take in your water? <laughs> you know what's safe? What about lead? <laughs> how do children metabolize it differently than adults? And so, what is the safe limit? What is the safe limit of carbon, mercury in the blood? And once that's been established through a lot of scientific work, then the EPA will publish a uh, proposal for regulation, which goes out and. It's there for comment, and you have to address every comment that comes in. And believe me, there are a lot of them usually, especially with the more controversial regulations. And then uh, you have to answer all those and come up with a good reason why they're right or wrong and the concerns that are raised. And uh, then you have to uh, you come back with the final rule, and you go through a, a long process for that. So it's something that should be well thought out based not on politics, but on policy and science. You just wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called How Not to Run the EPA. Mm-hmm. And you, one of the quotes from it was, as a Republican appointed by President George W. Bush to run the agency, I can hardly be written off as part of the liberal resistance to the new administration. But the evidence is abundant of the dangerous political turn of the agency that is supposed to be guided by science. Right. And in that article, you also talk about the EPA setting up what you call red teams. How would you say the EPA has gotten away from its mission that it's supposed to have? Well, I mean, first of all, it's very easy to hate the agency because it's a regulatory body. And, you know, every time you promulgate a regulation, you're causing somebody to change behavior or spend money for a problem they may not think exists. I mean, to a certain extent, we're the victims of our own success because the air is cleaner, the water is better protected, and the land isn't, is not is better off than before the EPA was established. Having said that, we still have enormous issues because you've got some 200,000 people who die every year in this country from uh, air, dirty airborne-related causes. And so that's a, those are pretty scary numbers when you think about it. So we need to be very careful about uh, how we progress with our, with our environmental protection. And 
what I've seen with this administration that is the most troubling part of what they're doing, obviously every administration comes in with a different way of approaching issues, but there seems to be almost a war on science. Um, first of all, there's a war on anything that has Barack Obama's name anywhere around it, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. You're just going to do, do away with it. But it's more the diminishing of science, the changes in the science advisory board, the taking down from the agency's uh, website studies that were done, paid for by taxpayers' dollars, but if they had anything to do with climate change, they're gone. Um, those kinds of things are just enormously troubling to me. They should still be out there. Um, they were paid for by taxpayers' money. And the fact that the scientists that uh, are retiring or being asked not to continue to serve either in science advisory boards or to fill the vacancies that have occurred within the agency, are, are, to the extent they are being replaced, seem to be being replaced uh, largely by representatives of industry. Now, industry has a right to be heard, and industry should be at the table when you're doing regulations, but they should not be the dominant voice. You need to have pure science there that's really analyzing what is safe for human health. Why do you think this is happening? Is this a pulling back from regulations in general? Is this just because the new administration doesn't believe that climate change is real or, or doesn't or doesn't think this is the federal government's role? Like, Do you have an idea of what you think the impetus behind this is? Well, I think it's a combination of those things. It's, um, you know, we always had a situation where you had Republicans who thought that any regulation was bad and Democrats who thought you couldn't have enough regulations. Uh, start from sort of that perspective. And then you add in the fact that uh, we have an administration that is really, its base seems to be a group of people who really, really believe that every regulation is bad and want nothing to do with it. And it's the easiest of all the promises that the president made for him to keep. I mean, he's gone back on a number of things or changed them slightly or, you know, said, well, not now even though he promised the day before yesterday on some of these things. Um, you know, the real world has intruded, and you don't get things done necessarily the way you think you ought to in the public sector or as fast. There's a reason for that. And um, it's just one of those things. Over time, we've allowed ourselves to get more and push more and more to the edges and the fringes of the party. And that's because people haven't really... They, they regard our rights as citizens very... We protect them very vigilantly, but we seem to forget about our responsibilities as citizens. And we do have a responsibility, and that's to be informed and to vote. And unfortunately, we voter turnout is appallingly low in the United States compared to other places in the world. We rate very badly. We're, we're very low on that. And what happened then is the people who do find, go to the polls tend to be the most partisan and, and tend to be toward the extremes of their parties. And when that happens, they're making that first most basic choice. So then when you get to the general election, the people are looking saying, I don't like either of these candidates that pox on both their houses. I want nothing to do with them. And so this is why how we get ourselves into trouble. And it's a, it's a very troubling phenomenon because I'm not sure I see where it, where it ends very quickly. Now, how would you describe climate change to people who have only heard it sort of generally on the news but don't actually know what it is? How would you describe that? Well, every time we see one of these big storms and, or droughts or fires because of droughts or floods, you say, look, something's happening. Humans did not, do not cause climate change. 
The earth has been changing since it was formed. But our activities, what we're doing to earth, to the planet, is so exacerbating a natural phenomenon that, that the earth can't deal with it anymore. They, it can't absorb it. And so we are starting to see real-world impacts right now. I mean, there is no... Today, uh, the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world. You have native indigenous tribes up there that are having to move because they can't live where they've lived all their lives, where their families have lived, because the tundra is melting underneath them because sea level rise is, is forcing them to move. So it, it's happening now. We see it in the storms that we've seen recently. I mean, the estimates, even before what happened at, uh, with um, Puerto Rico, really rebuilding Puerto Rico, and what happened uh, even before we had this, um, these fires, the California fires, from the fires that we have had over the summer, and there were some 70-some-odd fires in seven states and the three major hurricanes, again, before rebuilding Puerto Rico, um, we're estimating that that is going to cost to rebuild some $300 billion dollars now, if you think about that, that's enough, to, apparently, wow. according to all the statistics, to send every kid to a public university or college for four years free, for free. That's the trade-off we're making here. And while we're not going to stop or do away totally with climate change, we can slow it down to the point where we can adapt to it, start adapting better. I mean, we're going to have to make some very tough decisions. People can't always rebuild exactly where they were before. They're going to have to uh, build in a different way, and we're going to have to have some, some more restrictions as to how we handle these issues. So it's something that uh, we need to take very seriously and do what we can. And, and we've seen over the years again and again that we have been able to build our economy and at the same time improve the environment. Between The statistics are that between 1985 and 2010, we saw an increase in our population better than some 28%. We saw an increase in our demand for power somewhere around 30%. We saw a doubling in uh, GDP in real dollars. And at the same time, we reduced the what we call criteria pollutants, the six criteria or the six worst pollutants in the atmosphere by over 67%. So that's more people using more power um, and more people using more power, reducing the uh, the pollutants at the same time that we were uh, vastly reducing our, uh, I mean, excuse me, vastly increasing our uh, economy. So we can do this. We've done this before. We can do this. And we shouldn't let ourselves be tricked into thinking that it's one or the other, that's a zero-sum game, because that's just not true. Is the Republican Party as a whole em embracing of the idea that climate change is real or the fact that climate change is real, or would you say that it's just Trump's base is the only part of the party that is, that is in denial about climate change? Like what is, where do you think the party generally stands on this issue? Well, I mean, I know a lot of Republicans who believe in climate change. There is a, uh, a conference in the house of the climate change caucus that is Republican and Democrat. Um, these are people who are elected representatives who believe in climate change and think we should be doing something to address the issue. Better than 50% of the American people think that. And any poll done of 
uh, actually of Republicans shows that better than 50% say it's real, it's happening, humans have a role to play, and we should be doing something to address it. So I think Republicans do believe that climate change is real, and I think the genesis or the real core of where you're getting your pushback is with the uh, this administration and, the, and the, its play to its base. Now, I've read recently that the EPA's new strategic plan actually makes no mention of climate change, and, right. and the administration seems to be pulling back wholesale. What do you think the long-term impact of that will be if this administration doesn't do anything on climate change for four years? Well, we'll be in worse shape. I mean, we'll be in bad shape. It, it's not, again, we're not going to stop it on our own. But we need to keep moving forward. Actually, the good news is, you know, this horse has left the barn. You've got a number of major corporations that are taking steps to address their carbon emissions, their water usage, their profile. Uh, Shareholders are starting to submit shareholder resolutions to annual meetings saying, what are you doing about climate change? What are you doing about water usage? How are you handling these issues? And there are now groups that are that are advising investors saying, here are the good companies for climate issues. So, and they get it. I mean, the big companies that have made the commitments, the companies made commitments know that it's good for business. Cuts their cost. If you use less power, you're cutting your costs. If you have less waste to try to do away with, you're cutting your costs. It gives you a competitive advantage. You can advertise that this is what you're doing to investors and your shareholders. So, in many, many ways, this is going to continue whether the administration particularly wants it to or not. And that's good news for us, I believe, because it, uh, it does say that we will continue moving. But what we'll lose by the administration taking the hard line that it's taking is, first of all, we'll lose any ability to influence what's happening in the rest of the world. We're just, we can sit in on those tri-party talks or the G8 or the G20 or whatever, however many countries you want to put into it. Um, But we're not going to be taken seriously. They're not going to do anything necessarily that we would like them to do because we really just won't have a seat at the table. And that's not going to be good for us. We're going to want to have a role. We're going to to want to have a say that that is listened to, that people feel they have to take what we say seriously. But if we don't engage, well, no one has... You know, there's no no reason for them particularly to take what we say seriously. So that's too bad. We lose momentum. Uh, we lose our leadership position. And I, I just don't think that's where we want to be as a nation, frankly. Is there anything that we can do about it, that the public can do about it? Is it that we need to just call Congress or should people be writing to the EPA? All of the above. I mean, we're the only ones who can change it. What people need to remember is when the Environmental Protection Agency was established, it was 1970. Those were years 68, 69, 70, where you had violent protests uh, against the Vietnam War on college campuses and students were shot. You had riots, race riots in our cities. You had a whole lot of things going on. And it wasn't just because the leaders in Congress didn't have anything better to do and got up one day and said, let's take on the environment. It's because the public stood up and said, hey, we're sick and tired of being told we can't go outside because it's bad air quality, having rivers burst into flames spontaneously as they did, watching the land turn into a garbage dump. And Rachel Carson wrote The Silent Spring, and that's what got a Republican president, Richard Nixon, 
to establish the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, working with a Democrat Congress. It's always been bipartisan. It's not a partisan issue. You don't care. You don't clean the air for Republicans or make the water purer for Democrats. <laughs> you know, that's not the way it works. And Mother Nature doesn't care about geopolitical boundaries. We've got to care what's happening around us. And we need to let our elected representatives know that we do care, that this is important to us. And that's the way we live in a democracy, and that's the way you affect policy in a democracy. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. What should the EPA be doing in Puerto Rico or what like, what should we be looking for the EPA to do in Puerto Rico? Oh, first of all, I've got a huge job in ensuring the safety of the water. That's an enormous issue down there because um, it's polluted in many instances and uh, people are desperate for water. So they'll go to whatever source they can and there's going to be a heavy price to pay. So they've got to be coordinating with the other relief agencies to ensure that they understand the importance of getting potable water to people. And the agency needs to stay on top of this and continue to monitor very closely and get to as many places as they can to ensure the safety of that water. And then um, they're going to be looking at, at the dust uh, air quality from moving things. As you see with the wildfires, you've heard that talked about with the wildfires in California that they need to watch out before they start moving the dust too much because um, that there's a lot of bad stuff in that. EPA should be there, will be there, I'm sure it is there, taking measurements right now in real time and sharing that with the people who are responsible for the recovery and letting them know what the uh, what the issues are and what kind of warnings they have to put out to people to get them to be ensure that they're careful about what they're doing and where they're doing it. The agency has a huge role to play anytime there is a, a crisis really of any sort because almost all of them end up in being um, having environmental aspects to them. Uh, and so it's a, it's a challenging time for the agency. It's a challenging agency period, the end. And it's a, it's got a, a lot of people there who care deeply about doing their job and doing it right. And that's what they want to do. And they'll work with you even if you want to go about doing it in a way they'd, they're not that thrilled with. They'll still stick with you as long as they think what you're trying to do is in the best interest of the American people. Now, last um, last year, you, you endorsed Governor Kasich. And, um, and then you also said that you'd vote for Clinton over Trump. Right now, given what we've se- what we've seen of this administration, uh, do you still stand by your concerns about Trump? Uh, more than ever, um, I, I don't think he was prepared for the job. I don't think he had the intellectual cap- interest in learning what he needed to learn about the job. And uh, what I've seen of our policies, foreign policy, domestic policy, has been 
very troubling. And I think he's, uh, he has unfortunately proven what I was worried about, um, that the fact he didn't have that, that level of intellectual curiosity to want to dig deeper into issues and to find out what was really behind things that were going on, it just isn't there. It doesn't seem to be there. And he is so focused on how everything reflects on him. It's all about him. And again, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be. This is not about you. This is about the United States. And he has to understand that when he speaks, he speaks for the whole country, and that makes a difference to people. And our allies are now extremely confused, uh, trying to figure out who do they talk to. Do they talk to the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, or not? Because the minute he says anything, it seems within a matter of hours, uh, the president will say something entirely different. And that's not a good place for us to be as a country. It's uh, very destabilizing. I, I worry deeply about a war with uh, North Korea, about a 2 a.m. tweet that is just enough to twig Kim Jong-un to do something. Or, you know, we fly the planes over closer and closer doing that. He'll do something which will give us an opportunity to respond. And, and that scares me to death that we're looking for that opportunity. But what do you make of the of the Republican leadership seemingly still standing by him by and large? Is that is it just because he's the president or are they just not strong enough? What is it? Well, it's again, it goes back to being it's more about um, partisan politics than it is about policy. If you, everything today in Washington, it seems to me, is judged through that partisan political prism. You know, is this good for my reelection? Is this going to get me another vote in my caucus? Not about, is this the right way to solve a problem? And he's enormously powerful because he is the president of the United States. He has um, some huge backers, the Koch brothers and others, who can mount uh, primary challenges to those who decide they're not going to support him, as you've already seen the threats that are out there. And so very few of them are willing to stand up, which I think is a huge mistake, because I've always believed that the candidate who gets up and says, look, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to approach issues. You may not agree with me on every one, but you can know that I am here to look at these issues as somebody who wants to solve the problems, not as someone who just wants to uh, advance myself. And so you may not win by as much if you say that, but you can still win. And that's the important thing if that's what you care about, because you do. I mean, you can't make policy changes if you're sitting on the outside. I get that. I've been in public office. I know that. But on the other hand, uh, you do have to, when you're elected, to my mind anyway, you're elected as a Republican or a Democrat, but you're elected as an American first. And that's where your loyalty is at the end of the day. You you say, uh, yes, I'm a Republican. Yes, I'm a Democrat. I will approach the these issues in the generalized way that comes with those labels, but I'm going to first and foremost put my constituents at the head of the table. And why did you leave the administration Well, you were EPA administrator? um, For a couple of reasons. I mean, one, my husband and I really didn't like the bifurcated marriage approach to life. I mean, I really didn't (laughs) like being away from him all week and only home on weekends when I could get back or the few weekends he could come to Washington. But it was the specific timing was around a piece of regulation having to do with the Clean Air Act that I believe needed to be changed. I was fully with the president on that. But um, where I parted ways was you have to, when you're doing something like that, the important thing is where you set the parameters of 
what was safe and what was um, acceptable for this standard. And they wanted to set the number at a place that I just couldn't justify from all the work that we had been doing at the agency and looking at all the numbers. And it was going to, in my mind, allow the bad actors to continue to abuse the system and uh, was going to not solve the problem. So I was, I, you know, I, when you're a cabinet member, you don't set the policy. You weren't elected to anything. Um, the president and the vice president were. And so you have to do, you, your job is to give them your best advice, to tell them when you think they might be going in the wrong direction. But at the end of the day, if they say, this is what we want to do, you salute and say yes. Or you step aside, and I chose the latter on this one because I just could not justify the numbers that they wanted us to use. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when we think about this moment, there are a lot of people who feel like sort of the world's falling apart and that they're losing hope. What do you say to people uh, who are losing hope in this moment and are worried about what the future looks like? Well, I mean, you're right to be worried, but you can't give up because we're the only ones that can make it right again. And we can. We've been through worse in this country. At least we don't have any senator that's bashing another over the head with his cane, as happened during the Civil War. Um, You know, we don't have any of that kind of thing going on yet, although it seems we get pretty close at times. We can get it back, but it's up to us. And that means we have got to participate. We have got to be there, be part of the discussion, let our elected representatives know that they represent us, not the party, but us. And tell them when we like what they're doing as well as when we don't like what they're doing because, you know, they're human. And it makes a difference if they hear from their constituents saying, yeah, you're on the right track here. I like what, what's happening. For instance, those there's another caucus in the, uh, in the House particularly. It's got some Senate members, but primarily the House, called the Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, they've come together, Republicans and Democrats, uh, even number of each, and said, we are going to work together to solve the big problems facing the country. And they signed a pledge that said that if they take 75% of them, agree on a position, they will vote that way as a block. That can be very powerful as we get a more uh, bifurcated Congress, as we probably will in the next round of elections. So that becomes extremely important. We need to support those people and say, we're going to have your back because that's been the other problem. When they have been willing to stand up and when they have been willing to take on leadership, they get primaried and they get attacked by their own. And nobody has been there for them to, to give them the money that they need to be able to continue to, act, to speak out. And we need to be there for them. We need to say, we're going to support you. If you do this, We're going to support you and we're going to let those in leadership know that we like what you're doing and know that this is what we expect to see out of our elected representatives. And until we do that, we're going to have very little likelihood of changing things for the better. But we have an incredible opportunity to do that. And it's called the polls. It's called the election. And every one of these elections, we should step up and insist on being heard and I was just, and wasn't just actually, it was two months ago now, I guess, uh, in Kenya as part of a observation mission for that election. And while it is unfortunately, it's just a tragedy for the country what's going on now, the f- important thing to me was we got the polls op- didn't open until six o'clock. We got to the polls at 5.15. The line was 
literally a mile long, two and three deep. And they stood there when after the polls opened. It took them an hour or so to get in. They stood there and they cast their ballots. And it was raining and it was cold. And that's democracy. That's citizenship right there. And it's what we need to remember. You know, I've read recently about the the secrecy that is now in place at the EPA with the new EPA administrator, that there right. seem to be all these, like the, the calendar's not public, not making phone calls in normal places. There's no log <laughs> of things that there were logs of before. What do you, what does that secrecy, what's the impact of that on the work? Well, it sends a very bad message throughout the agency. It's that something nefarious is going on, whether it is or isn't. It just sends that kind of a message. It also says, you know, and I really don't trust you guys because I'm afraid someone's going to be listening in on me. It's ridiculous, frankly. Um, I don't object to his enhanced security because I guess he's getting a lot of um, threats, and I can't gainsay that. I don't know. So you have to take that at them at their word on that one. So he needs the securities appropriate, but... To have a special phone booth built into the office so he can have secretive, secure calls when there already is an office like that in the basement of EPA, there is in every one of the departments and agencies, you have the rooms for that. It makes no sense. I mean, you're spending taxpayers' money to do it, and it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Apparently, you have to be escorted up to the floor that the administrator's office is on and have to be escorted into the office and leave all electronic devices outside. What are you afraid of? And all it does is <clears throat> build mistrust within the agency, and you really want those people on your side. You want them to work with you, and they will if they think you really want them to. That makes sense. And one of the final questions is, what do you think the future of the Republican Party is? It feels like there are these different factions within the party. Uh, some, you know, like you were a very progressive uh, progressive governor on issues of same-sex marriage, of climate change. There are other people in the party that are far from you on those issues. What do you think the future of the party is? Well, I worry about it, and that's why I wrote my book way back when. Uh, and it's my party, too. I don't think I'd have the same label today, but, you know, the approach is I worry. I worry deeply because we may win in the short term some of these elections, but they're pyrrhic victories. We are really hurting the country, and eventually the public is going to see that, and they're going to object to that, and they're going to push back, and it's going to be a long and cold period of time that Republicans are out But what worries me as well, just for the country in general, is I think the Democrats are starting to move, and I've been saying it for a while, as far to the left as the Republicans have already to the right. Um, You can see it happening with the Bernie Sanders, with the Elizabeth Warrens and the Joe DeBasio, Bill DeBasios. You know, you don't want those kinds of extremes being your only choices. We've got that the majority of the American people are in the middle as you can see from party registration now. Party registrations are at a point where uh, it's 29% Republican, 30% identify as Democrats, and 40% identify themselves as independents. So every party's been losing uh, support because they've been moving to their extremes, and, and more of the people are in the middle. But you wouldn't say that the extremes of the parties are similar, right? The extremes of no, no, no. They're the just, right. But I, of- yeah, but I do think... I do think that the Bernie Sanders voters and the, um, the Donald Trump voters were two sides of the same coin. They were people who were angry and frustrated and fed up that Congress wasn't working in their best interests, that they had to work twice as hard to stay in the same place, that uh, things they couldn't see a future 
for their children and the way they had seen it when they were growing up and their parents. Um, I get it. I understand all that. And I think it's two sides of the same coin. And we just need to be careful of how far we let this go. Got it. Now, the last, uh, the very last question is, is a question I ask uh, everybody is, is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over your career that has stuck with you and why? Gosh, there have been a lot of them. <laughs> um, probably the best piece of advice I got was to always follow your gut. I found that the biggest problems that I've gotten into when I've gotten into problems is when I, I didn't listen to my inner voice saying, mm, don't do that, or yes, do this. And this is the right thing to do. I generally tried to follow it, but there, of course, were times when I second-guessed myself and, and didn't, and that's when I got into trouble. So I think we all have that kind of voice inside of us that tells us when we are onto something and when we should take a slow down a little bit and take another look. And uh, you should listen to that. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Positive of the People. I consider you a friend of the pod and hope to have you back soon. It was great. Thank you very much. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. And here's my conversation with Joshua Kissy, an incredible artist who you might know from Street Etiquette, and now his new venture, Tonal. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us today on Potsy of the People. No, thank you for having me. I really, really, really appreciate it. Now, most of the internet knows you because of Street Etiquette, which is how I first came about you. Can you just talk about what Street Etiquette is? Absolutely. Street Etiquette was founded by myself and Travis Gums. We're good friends in high school. We met over the love of fashion and sneakers and that type of culture. Um, So we started a blog in 2008, just documenting our own style, which in turn turned into us creating editorials and content. I think one of the most notable ones is called Black Ivy, um, where we found these images on Life Archives, I believe, of kids and students at HBCUs like Howard and Spelman and Morehouse. And it was all from like the 1950s. And this was like 2011, 2012 that we found and we're like, wow, this super, it was super inspiring to us. So we created an editorial where we got like 15 to 20 of our friends to shoot on the campus. And we did this whole like dandy school Ivy League kind of commemoration to those schools, but as well as just like stylistically, um, bring, that was like the fashion trend at the time as well. So it was the first time instead of baggy jeans and sneakers, it was like, okay, I want bow ties and, and penny loafers. So <laughs> growing up in the Bronx, it was definitely different to how people receive you when they see you dressing like that. But, uh, uh, the internet loved it. And, uh, it just built a community for street etiquette of people that really admired the content that we did. And there wasn't a lot of black and brown content when it came to like the fashion industry. So we kind of became the first reference point. And where can people go to, to see the image of the street etiquette work? Yeah. You just literally go to street etiquette.com 
in his, in our editorial work. So you could scroll right down and, and see that whole slideshow and still beautiful, still great photography and just great images. And where are you from? What's your story? Like, how did you get to a point <laughs> where you were doing street etiquette? I know we're going to talk about tonal, um, yeah, which is what one of the, like the reason I wanted you to be here, but Tell us how you got to street etiquette, how you got to this place where you could even launch something like Tono. Um, well, I mean, I'm born and raised in the Bronx. I'm Ghanaian American. My parents are from Ghana. Um, and I think growing up with, with African culture, like in the Bronx is like the highest population of people from Ghana outside of Ghana. So it was like, I kind of grew up in Ghana though. I was in America, like all the traditions, all the like, cultural events, like all these things are always going on. And I think it gave me a different perspective to look at like cultural storytelling and, and attire and tradition. And a lot of those things I admire, but a lot of things I put my own spin on. So I've always just been kind of infatuated with different types of people, different types of culture and New York city being a perfect kind of playground for that. I just kind of explored early on, like in high school or even in middle school, I was taking a train downtown just to see different people going to Soho, going to village, going to like me pack. I just wanted to see different people outside of my neighborhood. And I think I was just really inspired by how people were able to express themselves and just live different. And I was like, wow, it doesn't have to be like what it is in the Bronx. Like you could bring your own spin to it and kind of package your own identity based on what you're inspired by. And how old are you? I am 28 years old, but as far as the internet goes, I'm probably like, 60 years old because <laughs> like, <laughs> like been doing this since I was 18. I mean, it's been 10 years and I think being 10 years on the internet is like you're in a retirement home almost because people have seen you. Like I get kids that come up to me and be like, Hey, I, I, I really love striatica when I was in the eighth grade. I'm like, eighth grade. Like, wow. So it was just like, <laughs> you get a range of people in that 10 year mark where they were inspired by your work. And it just really shows the testament of what, the internet could do and just like social media has been able to do as far as connecting people. And now let's talk about Tono. What is Tono? How did you get to a place where you could start it? And why did you start it? Oh man, Tono is a culturally diverse photo stock company. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, wait, what? Like, what is that? And it's, it's something you see every day, but I think a lot of people just don't take note to what is stock photography, but it could be on billboards. It could be on subway advertisements. It could also be in press and media and journalism so and magazines as well. Um, but basically, stock photography is something that's super vapid and something that's dated to people. And people, it's almost memeable. Like people don't really take stock photography serious. But I knew, and it's also founded, Tono's founded by myself and Karen Oconquo, who's out of Seattle. So we're kind of bi-coastal in that way. But basically, stock photography was dated in the sense that it didn't show the proper representation of people of color. And I knew imagery is, imagery is sort of like a historical reference. It's like, this is how people are living today at this time. So if we don't have an accurate depiction of that, it kind of takes away or kind of doesn't do this full story justice as far as how people are living in 2017 and how we see the world. So Tono was sparked after Last year, July, the unfortunate and unjust killings of Alton Sterling and Philander Castle, me and Karen were just like, we have to do something like we like there needs to be. And this is where we were like, hey, like creativity could be a form of activism. Like, you know, it, it depends how you 
break down the idea and how you present it. But we're like, we just got so, so upset about what was happening. And we thought whatever gift we have, like how can we propel that to solve the many layers of white supremacy, the many layers of racism, the many layers of just misrepresentation. And what has it, what has the reception been like? Is it, it, has it been what you want it to be? Oh my God. It's been amazing. Um, We've been reached out to by Google, Facebook, Microsoft on that level, but just, just having a community support, I think is really important. Like, of course, those clients and, you know, they're kind of leading the world as far as data and information goes. But at the same time, I think just having the support of people who feel like, hey, they just just raise their hand like straight up like, hey, I believe in what you guys believe in. I may not buy stock photography. I may not even care about stock photography, but I care about the idea that Tonal represents. And I think that's the most inspiring. Um, so it's gone. It's like exceeded what I thought it was going to be. And it's only been out for two months now. And me and Karen, we're, we're just like super inspired to keep taking it to the next level. Like it should be the standard of what people think of when they think of representation stories, as well as people of color and imagery. Now what's the, uh, what's the website? It's called tonal.co. So T O N L.co. And the way that tonal, the name even got started was thinking about skin tone or thinking about tones and we're thinking about, okay, like how can we play on this word to make it something that catches, but as well as be a part of the graphic identity we built with it. So it's it's based around a lot of colors on the website. The navigation is also based around color systems. So we just wanted people to have something fresh and new in stock photography because that's something that's been classified as dated. And we just wanted to hit the refresh button on it in many different ways. And when people go to the site, like what are the, what are the options for engagement? So it seems like this is targeted towards like businesses or companies that use stock photography. Like how do they, you know, I'm, I'm not a business. I don't use stock photography. I think that this should exist and I believe in you and your work. So I don't know any of the like details about how one would go about engaging tonal. So like how, how does it actually work? So um, from small business to bigger client to a person like yourself that doesn't probably care for stock photography, but we also have different sections. So we have something called narratives, which is stories of different people that are in these photos and you kind of get their own personal stories. And for me, I feel like storytelling is one of the things that connects the world. You know what I mean? And it's really strong in creativity. So we have, you know, our social media channels as well as that narrative section where you could kind of breeze by and see like, who are these people that are just in these photos? Because a lot of stock photography, you see these people, but you don't know who they are. And this, and I feel like at this point right now, people are trying to live in their truth and also reflect on other people's truths. So it was really important to not just have like a black or brown face, but more so like, hey, here's the story of this person. How This is how this person lived their life, not just in this photo, but in general, here's their perspective that that may speak more to what you're kind of like inspired by. So even though you're not going to like, hey, let me click this photo, let me add to cart. Um, you could buy a la carte photos or maybe get a subscription. So we have different tier subscriptions for a month. So you could get 15 photos for a certain price. You get 35, or you could get 75, but those are for small businesses. But for somebody that doesn't, that doesn't equate in their day-to-day life, 
if they're just interested in love storytelling, just how podcasts have taken it to the next level, I think um, our narratives piece, our social media channels, you can kind of get the story of what we represent. And one of the questions that I ask everybody in this, in this <laughs> context is like, people feel, um, people feel like the world's like imploding, right? That there's so much stuff happening that yeah. they can't focus on all of it, that there's a fatigue happening. What do you say to people uh, who come to you with that sort of hopelessness? Um, I feel like, you know, I think it's an important part of what's going on is also moving forward. And that's not recognizing what has happened in the past or what's happened um, or what may happen in the future. But I think it's really focused on the present that gets people to be in, a, in the right mindset to make the right decisions, whether that is like whatever you are, whoever you are, like everybody has a gift, I believe. And that gift could be tapped into for them to feel fulfilled that they're actually doing a greater good on the earth. Like it's not that you need to be a doctor or surgeon or, or, or being enlisted in the army or Navy, but whatever your gift is and how you interact with day-to-day people, people you just meet or people that you've known for a long time, I think people just need to recognize more of their own troops and how they could use their gifts to, to kind of fight against what's all this, what's all this kind of this negative energy and this, I mean, systematically, <laughs> socially, there's, there's so many different ways to attack it. And I feel like people in certain positions just need to really dig down and be like, how can I be present in this moment to give off the best of what I can be? You know, and I feel like in those, in those, when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were unfortunately murdered, I just thought to myself, like, what can I do? Like, I have friends who protest. I have friends that have nonprofits that are geared towards different sectors. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, if God blessed me with the gift of storytelling or creativity or photography, like how can I take that gift and, and give back in a way that opens up the perspective of everybody in general, but as well as just like shifts things. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's a very hard question because everybody's in this mood and, and we understand what's happening and it's a very important time to act on it. And I think one of the lessons you just talked about is the, like understand your gift well and act on it. Like in this moment, like figure out what your role is and, and sort of be in that fully. Yeah. Like you're right. Uh, what, what, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? I, I waking up every day, to be honest, um, seeing people do that same exact thing we just discussed as far as tapping into their gift, uh, I guess family, like the possibility of family, uh, um, meeting people that maybe I probably had a preconceived notion about or a type of, or whatever, just like learning more about yourself, I think could be really, really important. So that just, it always inspires me to learn something new in life about myself and other people around me. And I think as we're in like that reflection mode, um, just growing as a person is just really important and and you're going to be uncomfortable and that's just a part of the process. But um, I just try to answer that the best way I can as far as like living life that I, how I feel like I could wake up every day and be happy about the things I'm pouring into and the things that are important to me. Now, where can people find you on social media? So you can find me on social media at Joshua Kissy on Instagram and Twitter and black Twitter. <laughs> or you could also email me at Joshua Kissy at me.com for any personal inquiries. And yeah, that's where you could catch me. How do you spell Joshua Kissy? It's J-O-S-H-U-A-K-I-S-S-I. Got it. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Tonal. Thanks for being on the pod. And I consider you a friend of the pod. I hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, Dere. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity and just for being able to tell a story that may inspire other people as well. So thank you so much. And you've inspired so many people as well. So I thank you for just taking that risk and being able to live in your truth. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining us on this week's Pod Save the People. Make sure you share with a friend and I'll see you back next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.